Welcome to the School of Rock Bottom podcast with Oliver Mason. I'm an actor, a performing arts principal, a voiceover artist, and a mental health coach. It's these careers and passions combining that have given birth to this podcast. Those working in entertainment are twice as likely to suffer from depression and up to 15 times more likely to have an anxiety disorder. And those working across the creative industries are three times more likely to have a mental health problem. So on this podcast, I invite amazing creatives who have suffered a rock bottom but have survived. These stories need to be told so that people know that there is always hope and there is always a way out. Um, before I start today's podcast, I would like to add an extra trigger warning that we are going to be discussing um, subjects around child sexual abuse. I'm really honoured and excited today because I've got the brilliant Andrew Jeffrey with me. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm oh, good. Thank you, Oliver. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm just going to give Andy a bit of an intro. Um, and in the absence of an auto cue, those watching on YouTube, and if you haven't subscribed yet, please do that. Uh, forgive me while I look down at the show notes, because uh, I wouldn't <laughs> want to get anything wrong here with my esteemed guests. gaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Okay, so Andy was heavily involved in drama as a youngster and has over 20 years in theatre management and organising numerous national music hall and variety festivals. These days, Andy is a public speaker, writer and campaigner whose autobiographical book, A Small Boy Smiling, tells a remarkable story of survival and how he has overcome the trauma, guilt and shame of childhood sexual abuse, teenage alcoholism and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. When he was eight years old, he was targeted by a group of predatory paedophiles who subjected him to 18 months of horrific sexual abuse. A Small Boy Smiling was published under the pseudonym Matt Carey, since the book was published in 2018, Andy has been busy with public talks for the NSPCC and other national charities. He was the subject on BBC Radio 4's The Untold, which attracted over 1.1 million listeners and has spoken openly about his experiences on BBC Radio 2's Jeremy Vine show and BBC Five Live's Stephen Nolan show. Andy is a regular keynote speaker in the UK and internationally. In 2019, he was honoured to be pledged speaker at the major fundraiser for the UK charity Childline. And Andy is now also looking for new opportunities as an actor. <laughs> so he's gone full circle, which is yeah. brilliant. <laughs> as I mentioned in the trigger warning, we are going to be talking about um, some very serious themes and some stats that I discovered in the last week leading up to this podcast have really surprised me and upset me if I'm honest with you that there are two million adult survivors of sexual abuse in the UK but one in four women have been assaulted or raped and one in five children have suffered sexual abuse and I I had no idea it was that high mm. um before we talk about that in a lot more detail Andy I'd like to to ask you if um if you could take us back to a rock bottom moment in your life. Um, I know that there's more than one. Um, so if you, if you want to discuss a couple, that's fine. And really try to describe to the listeners and the viewers exactly what was going on mm -hmm. in the best way that you can. Thanks, Oliver. It's a great pleasure to be here. And it is weird to use the word pleasure, but you know, I kind of find these as a, as an opportunity. There's been a lot of healing over the years and, and that's come about by uh, getting support and talking about what happened and 
learning how to release a lot of it mm. and uh, by being around people who have been through similar things and are that bit further along the healing journey than than I am or certainly I was uh, anyway and um and you're right thank you for mentioning the trigger warning I'm not going to be gratuitous just mm. to let any survivors and I'm sure there will be survivors listening to this because there are so many of us you you know the stats kind of say it all and uh, so I'm not going to be gratuitous about what happened. There's no need to be. We know what abuse is. We know what sexual abuse is. In terms of uh, of rock bottoms, I guess, I suppose specifically to the abuse, the, the worst moment was, um, as you mentioned about alcoholism, I was a teenage alcoholic. I hit rock bottom with alcohol at the age of 20. And uh, at that stage, the booze had stopped working completely. So nothing but nothing got rid of the flashbacks to the abuse that I was experiencing. And, uh, and, and that was horrific because effectively you're reliving the abuse. You're losing contact almost entirely with the reality of where you are and you're back in the child, if you like, in terms of how the body's reacting and, and what's coming into the mind and you're feeling the fear and the shame and the, and the panic and the menace and everything else. And at my very worst, I, I had such an awful sense of shame that I felt... Uh, and this is graphic, but I felt almost as if I had fungus growing underneath my skin. I felt such a sense of disgust with with myself because I blame myself. The med convinced me that it was all my fault. And the the consequence of the alcoholism was that I, I developed such a self-hatred and such a, a level of psychosis that um, I wasn't really present to my surroundings. I was living with that trauma um, on, on a daily basis. And, uh, and that was when I had a lot of suicidal thoughts. And I mean, I already was self-harming. I was already punching myself in the face quite a bit. I was headbutting walls. And I was doing whatever I could to knock out, literally knock myself out, because the, the reality of these memories, these flashbacks, was just so horrific that I was desperate for them to stop. And um, at the age of 20, that was my first significant rock bottom. And um, that was probably the worst bit. The, it's strange, you know, the, <laughs> there is a stage beyond that a little bit more, which was um, in recovery from alcoholism. I was at this point sober and I was about eight months of alcohol and I was still having flashbacks. I had them for many years. And... Um, I remember, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm very grateful to be sober through AA. And, um, and I used to love playing cricket as a kid. <laughs> that, that changed with the cricket bat, but I used to get a cricket bat and it was in a frenzy to do anything to stop reliving the abuse. So I would get a bang, and absolutely F and blind. And just like myself in the mirror, I, I wanted to see myself hurting because I felt I was the wrong. It was, I was the one wholly responsible for everything that happened. I've since learned that many, many other survivors of, of sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, adult sexual abuse, um, have that same false belief that they are responsible in some way. And, and, and clearly they are not, and, and I wasn't either. But it took years to, I knew that intellectually as a young adult, how could I be responsible? I was eight, nine, ten when all this happened. But because of the nature of post-traumatic stress disorder and the difficulty talking about it because you go into a place of shock, that's mm. what the flashbacks are about. It's, mm. it's a shocking event which you, you're finding very hard to verbalize because the memories at times are very fragmented. Mm. 
you know, other times they're very lucid, very vivid, very real, and 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 you're still in a place of shock in a in a in a slightly different way. But um, so many of these false beliefs are trapped within the suppressed memories of the abuse, mm-hmm. which in my case came up much later in life, which uh, precipitated writing the book. I was in trauma therapy again at that stage, which was about mm. six years ago now, seven years ago. And uh, so this has been a long journey and, mm. and it's needed to be. And, and I don't regret that. I needed the time to heal. And um, anyone who's been through child sexual abuse or any form of sexual abuse will, will know that it, it takes time. Mm. But healing really is possible. I couldn't be here talking about it. I mean, that's just a statement of fact. I, I couldn't talk about this in a public arena yeah. if I didn't feel much more at peace with, with my experiences. And the stats around men sharing this kind of thing, you really are a hero because stats show that many men don't feel that they can talk about it. And the fact mm. that you're on here doing just that, to me, you're a hero. And I, I highly, highly commend you for doing so. It's going to help millions of people. Thank you. It's it's well. Thank you for saying that. It's true. Very few men talk about this. I think where I've been incredibly fortunate is that I've met a number of men, as I mentioned, I think at the top, or a number of people, men and women. But but I suppose the men helped me more in a way because I could directly relate to 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 those experiences, um, who who have been that bit further along the healing journey than me, hmm. and I could relate to them because one of the things about child sexual abuse or any form of trauma is that you feel incredibly isolated. Uh, you really feel responsible. You can't possibly tell anyone about it. You, you've been forced into a silence by the mind games and the threats and the menace. I mean, I mean, these men, you know, they threatened to kill me. You know, they, they, there were a pair of scissors involved at one point. There were, there were regular threats mm. to my life. And then there were mind games. I mean, the threats that there were other men around who treated children really badly in this area, but we're going to look after you and you just do what we want and you'll be absolutely fine. Mm. But if you don't, and there's always that but, and, and they ch- ramping up the pressure again and again and in the end you just shut down because you just cannot cope with it emotionally mentally i mean adults wouldn't be able to cope with that let alone a child Mm. you know Uh, and then you shut down completely and you you i i remember normalizing the abuse Mm. it was as if that part of my body was like nothing to do with me and i drift away in my own world and live in a fantasy world which continue into my adult life as a coping mechanism Mm. You know, some kind of external fantasy, be it, you know, a, you know, alcohol or work or a woman or, 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 or just a fantasy world because reality was too, too painful. I kept running away from that. And so much of that stems back to the abuse and those learned coping mechanisms. Right. You know. And in terms of the, the first question I asked you, having, having read your book, um, I was surprised that you you took us to that point when you were 20. Mm. I thought you were going to perhaps take us back to the moment when you were eight, Mm. you talk about in the book. And um, I don't expect you to go through that potentially now, but Mm. for those that are listening who maybe, you know, want a little bit more information about what happened, I wondered Mm. if you could just summarize that. Yeah. um, That that, that moment. I know it's a a difficult moment to talk about. No, no, I'm, I'm happy to do that. The, the challenge with PTSD, uh, as I would imagine most people with PTSD, or comp- I was given an upgrade a few years ago, complex PTSD now. You've you got go. to have a bit of dark humour. Well, <laughs> it, it helps to you know have a little bit, if you like. Um, the challenge was that most of the memories of the abuse 
I, I had, which I could remember, um, they were there very early in my recovery and I had a lot of professional help for a couple of years, solid trauma therapy mm. in my early 20s. The most horrific memories of the abuse and the grooming that happened came back to me eight years ago. And the challenge is the memories for me did not come back in chronological order. If they had done, and it's just the way it is, if they had done, if I had remembered the nature of the grooming in my early 20s, I would have realized this false belief was was false, i.e. that I was responsible mm. because the grooming was so uh, immediate and menacing. And, you know, I was playing football in a, in a park around the corner from where I used to live in Western Supermare. And um, I do remember the fact that there'd been men watching, you know, us play football on and off for a little while. But there was loads of people walking dogs in the park, lots of things happening in the park. So that didn't seem out of the ordinary. But um, but one occasion I'm desperate to go to the loo and there was about three or four public toilets in the park. And I went to one and I'm in the the latrine and, and suddenly there are, there are two men, one either side of me. And there's one it, later I realized was kind of a look at the door. And they started talking to me about what a great footballer I was and how they came and admired me. And they, one of them said, yeah, I finished work early because I can see you're a professional footballer in the making. All this kind of so-called charm offensive happening. But I knew this was weird. I felt very uncomfortable. I mean, you're one guy who's six foot two and I'm four foot eight or whatever I was at eight, you know, and another guy right next to me. And you can sense and I remember feeling the menace and the threat and the closeness of them physically. And then one of the smaller ones whips out, you know, is whatever, and and starts to talk about it and says, it's all right, you can look and all this kind of stuff. And I don't want to look. I'm, I want to pee and I want to go and play football. And then another guy um, starts to say that, um, you know, he puts pressure on me by saying, you know, we could see you'd be waving at us and we wanted to come in and say hello and we know you're one of our special friends and all of this stuff is going on. And I, and I remember saying, like, listen, I, I, I want to go. I, I don't remember waving. I'm really sorry, but I, I want to go. And then and they start to have a go at me about this notion that I've been teasing them in some way, that I've been leading them on. And the atmosphere changes very, very quickly into the menace of it all. And then the, the, the bigger chap um, next to me on my left starts to say he's feeling very ill and he's got an enormous pain and the pain's in the groin. And, and the other guy puts me under pressure to, you know, to rub him off. And, um, and, and eventually I, I do that. I don't want to do it. I know it feels wrong to do that. I feel very scared, but I want to get out. And and so I do rub him off. And um and obviously he he's relieved and then it kind of developed from there, you know. And and I mean I'm condensing what happened over probably ten minutes thereabouts. You know, I mean, they'd already made out they knew where I went to school and they knew the head teacher well because they said, oh, what's the teacher at that school you go to? And I said the name of the school and they said, oh, yes, we know the head teacher there. You know, yes. What's his name, Martin? And I said, no, no, his name is, you know, he said, yes, we know him. Yes, you, of course, you meet him social, whatever, golf or something. And so they just shut down every avenue there could be. So they normalized the whole experience and they made out they knew exactly where I lived, which eventually they did because they used to follow me home. You know, and, and, you know, 18 months, two years of sexual abuse, twice a week, sometimes three times a week, started from there in multiple locations with loads and loads of different men. And, um, and in the end, you just get on with it because you don't know a way out. And, and that was the hardest thing because 
those memories of the grooming, of everything I've just explained, came back to me like eight years ago, seven years ago. The, the worst memory of the abuse, which was the final memory, which was the scissors and they were threatening to, to use them, um, that came back to me seven years ago. Right. And so that kind of bookended it. And in many ways, remembering that, talking about it, releasing so much rage that I had and shame that I had and confusion brought about the healing. Mm. I mean, I had a breakdown, which led to the breakthrough. Mm. You know, I'd been sober probably 20 years by then. And, and it wasn't about drinking. I didn't want to drink, but I was suicidal again. And, you know, shortly before the breakdown, I was running a theater in, in another part of the country. And um, the Savile stuff was happening on TV. I'm sure you remember mm, all these. Of course, yeah. Th these um, stories came out about Savile and, you know, what he did, the evil man that he was. And, um, and I remember watching that very obsessively, like on Channel 4 News. I wanted to dive into the television and torture him, if I'm honest. The mm. rage I felt. The embodiment of all that rage towards all of those different men who had raped and accused, uh, abused me, I wanted to take out on him. Yeah. And, um, and the truth is, Oliver, I mean, we've been good friends, theatre friends now for some years. Is that, mm. I mean, you know me. I'm not a violent man at all. And not thank at all. God for that. Mm. But it's like the most horrific attachment to one's personality mm. is the is the trauma mm. because the fight inside of you is i think i always knew i was a gentle soul but the desire to hurt certain men um you know who reminded me of the abusers were overwhelming yeah I, I i'm so relieved that i never ever acted out on that violence because it's kind of all or nothing do you know yeah I mean, just as a very quick aside, if I may, of course, there was um, there was a serial killer called Michael Ryan, and Hungerford, 1987, and he killed 16 people. I have no idea why. He might have been psychosis. He might have whatever. I don't know why he did it. And um, but I, whenever I was triggered, after I was triggered, and the flashbacks would happen, and there'd be like Groundhog Day. This is my 20s into my 30s. And it wasn't every week, but it was often. It was, and, and when they happened, it would completely floor me. I just, I just feel exhausted, and I felt I barricaded myself into the flat almost. You know, I didn't, but I felt as if you know. And um, and the fragmented flashbacks would happen to the incident with the scissors, the final incident of the of the abuse, and uh, and this was the most horrific one. And I didn't have enough visual memory of those flashbacks at that stage to be able to talk about it. All I knew was that in my mind, I was at the edge of this abyss and it was horrible. It was horrific. And my body would be so anxious. So, you know, my neck, huge pains in the neck, you know, palpitations down the side. You know, I would have just be exhausted the back of my, the base of my spine, bit of pain, a lot of pain. And in my genitalia area, there was like shame was there, if, you know, and it was embodiment of it. It was, it was just, um, just horrific. And when I would come through that, being exhausted, I would think about Michael Ryan. And I think in some ways my conscious mind was trying to understand the level of rage that I felt within me towards these men. Mm -hmm. And it was as if all the people Ryan had killed were, were the men that I was raging I against, I who I couldn't name. I didn't know who they were. They weren't linked to school or to a to a club or a football team or anything like that. These were strangers, well-organized pedophiles in a small seaside town. Yeah. 
you know. So that that I'm just so grateful I never acted out mm. in that rage. I, my life would be, I would be in prison. I would be a lifer. I'm not exaggerating. Absolutely. I'm really not well, exaggerating. I'm very I'm, glad you're not in yeah. prison, Andy. Can't tell Same you You've covered an awful lot there, and, and thank you for that. And what, what I'm going to attempt to do now is kind of break it up into pieces, if, if, if you sure. like. Just going back to your book, um, from what I gather, my understanding of it was, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that after the abuse stopped, mm. um, it's almost like you kind of blocked it out, mm. but it wasn't until your teenage years and puberty when yeah. you were getting sexually attracted, as uh, as we all do, mm. um, to to others. Mm. Um I believe it was the guilt and the shame around feeling sexual attraction yeah. Um, yeah. D- to females that actually yeah. brought back the memories from yeah. when you were eight. Mm. Um, is that where alcohol came in then for you to then sort of block out that, that guilt and shame and, and the PTSD that came with it? Were, were you self-medicating with alcohol? Um, almost, yes. I mean, my first drink... Very briefly, my first drink, I was eight, uh, and white wine, and, and the buzz, the effect was immediate. And that physiological reaction in my body was just, oh, I loved it. I loved the taste, but I loved the effect. So that was when I was eight. And you're right, when I hit puberty at the age of 12, I remember being on a holiday in Truman Hall, which is in Cornwall. And there's a lovely young, I mean, she's my age, presumably 12, blonde girl there. And I really, really, really fancied her. It's the first mm. crush I ever had. Yeah. It was horrific experience. I hated the way I felt. As you rightly said, I felt dirty. I felt disgusted with myself. I felt panicky. And, and you know, I, I learned later on in life that, you know, sexual attraction for me was a massive trigger to the abuse. So what mm. should have been a very enjoyable, maybe confusing experience at age of 12, of, of course. You but know, nowhere was, near to that level. Oh, yeah. It was just horrific, horrific. Mm. And I didn't self-medicate straight away, but my my attitude to alcohol was, and whenever I had the opportunity to drink, I drank and I adored it. Mm. But my family are not alcoholics at all. They, they, you know, just normal drinkers. But, you know, I remember being at a, a, at a family, my parents' 25th wedding anniversary, and it was in a local church hall, and I nominated myself to look after the bar. No one asked me to do that. I did that, and There's I was taking... There's a lot of booze in the church, apparently. Hey, mate, so. there was at that, but, you know, <laughs> and I nominated myself, and I remember taking out the empties, and they weren't empty, there was mm. booze in them. And at the age of 15, I was drinking more regularly whenever I could, so I was going to a school in Bristol, I was doing plays, I was doing rehearsals, and I was hanging out a little bit later after rehearsal than, than, than going home and having the odd drink here and there. And I loved it. It made me feel big and made me feel powerful. I got a buzz out of it. And by the age of 17, I was blacking out. and I, I was already stealing for alcohol then. And 17 to 20, I was drinking alcoholically. And I mean, not every day, but whenever I had the opportunity to drink, which was often because I used to you know, create the opportunities. Mm. Um, I drank and I drank to get drunk. I drank for that buzz for that. And it blocked out these awful, horrific feelings because throughout my teens, you know, I fancied plenty of different girls, but I was just like crippled, crippled by the emotions that I was feeling. Mm. And I didn't understand them. And, And people who haven't been abused might not understand this. Forgive me. Maybe they do, but I, you know, I didn't understand it anyway, but, I, I buried as, that as much as I could. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to go there. And whilst the booze worked for me and I got the buzz, that rocket fuel, it was wonderful. 
And in the end, I would do anything to get a hold of a drink. But come the age of 17, 18, the buzz had gone. There was never a kick out of it. There was never that rocket fuel. And I was desperate to get it. And I drank and I used drugs. And, you know, I did whatever I could to get, get drunk. And I couldn't even get to oblivion in the end. Nothing knocked out the insanity. And that's when I started right. the self-harm. And right at the end of my drinking, I think it was about 19, there, there used to be Old Spice aftershave in white bottles. It used to have like a gold rim. Right. And I remember the morning after night before with the shakes, you know, trying to bite this, this rim off, you know, trying to bite the rim off to drink the aftershave. Wow. And I drank some of it and it went down. It was disgusting. It was, and it, it burnt and it was horrible. And as I drank the aftershave, I was punching myself in the face as well. Just fuck. And I used to like, there, just fuck. You know, it's just... That was the level of safe self-hatred. Now, I, I, I was brought up in a very loving family. Mm, I come from mm. a loving family, you know, and, and, and saw a very loving family. It was with me over the weekend. It was a nice time. So none of this trauma, none of the abuse was anything to do with them at all. Yeah. But one of the greatest effects of the abuse was the belief I had for so long that I was a despair disgusting piece of shit mm. and I deserve to be in pain and I've met so many survivors who, who have felt the same way right. and it's, it, it's a challenge to unpick that because with PTSD getting access to those memories to talk about that stuff is very difficult Yeah, you know. but there are incredible ways we people do EMDR and various other therapies. Are well this is what I was, I was going to ask you actually and these, mm. this, these are some of the elements that I'm keen to break down a little bit mm. um if we could touch on the the alcohol abuse first, if that's all right, because sure. um, you referenced that um, you've not had a drink in a long time. Mm. Actually, that's not fully true because I know that actually it's 30 years. So it's a very long time tomorrow yeah. Yeah, yeah. since your last yeah. drink. And I know in the book you you attribute your sobriety to Alcoholics Anonymous mm. and an AA. Mm. And I would assume that anyone listening to this who who is struggling around alcohol that you would um, you would suggest that they try an AA meeting, yeah, yeah. I, I would guess. Yeah. Um, in, ter in terms of the PTSD, mm. <clears throat> just for someone that doesn't understand PTSD, yeah. um, imagine we've got a 10 year old here that's, you know, learning about PTSD. Mm. In, in kind of most simple terms you can, could you try and break it down? Because I still, mm. you know, I do understand PTSD. I've had to for work, but I still think it's something that people struggle with mm. and i'm just interested from your experience mm. yeah if you could try and simplify it okay. as best we can and what it is before i was able to talk about the abuse my experience of the abuse would be that i would be triggered by mm. sexual attraction or by a man who reminded me of one of the abusers in some subconscious way and that could be on a bus it could be on a train it could be something completely innocuous and what would happen is very quickly, rather like a switch being pulled or being pushed, I would start to relive the emotions of it. So I would go from someone being fairly calmish to suddenly feeling very much under threat, uh, very scanning the area, and I would feel the tension in the body. I would feel a, a sense of panic. Um, I would feel a sense of um, sometimes numbness. You know, sometimes it'd be one extreme or the other. I have a complete numbness and in shock of trying to work out what's going on, like a rabbit in the headlights sort of thing, mm. or being in a, in a car accident. You know, if you've just been in a car accident and someone says to you, recite the poem you told me yesterday, you 
you can't do it. You're in, you're in shock. You're, well, PTSD is that kind of experience. And often with PTSD, and particularly complex PTSD, you have flashbacks. Uh, and this is when the trauma from the abuse comes and, and I used to call it my savage mind. It's like the trauma is just attacking you and you're having flashbacks of images of people doing things to you. And, and as I said, the scissors and so forth would be just be there. And I'd just be like that, you know, and you and, and, I, and this could be happening regardless of what you're doing. You could be watching a film. You could well, be it happens out of the blue. This is the That's challenge right. of complex or, or PTSD. I mean, I remember once sitting uh, with my first AA sponsor, actually, in, in a cafe. Yeah. And um, I can't remember what he said, but he said something and it triggered a response from me. And I just felt really uncomfortable. And this was one of the worst experiences of what we call disassociation, where you, you start to lose consciousness with what's going on right. you're going to another place and he it was it was tunnel vision for a while i mean you're three foot away from me mm. and i remember my sponsor being there and i was like six foot away and almost like a, a tunnel you is it know, like with a dissociation is it yeah is it, is it similar because you get that yeah. in a panic attack don't you where, yeah, you, yeah. where you get dissociation yeah. yeah and i feel like my consciousness was going like right. my legs might give way at my worst and i remember times just hiding in a park and i'm just being so just feeling so humiliated and out of control. But if mm. someone said to me, what happened? What's wrong with you? I wouldn't have been able to verbalize it. Right. Dealing with people or situations. And that was the greatest challenge with, with, with PTSD is that sudden switch that happens in the mind. Mm. Now, in later life, the healing from that, you actually can. My experience is you can heal from that. Yeah. I can still dissociate a little bit. I can still feel a bit panicky. But... I don't relive the abuse as the eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old who went through it. Now my memory of the abuse is is more distant in the healthiest sense that it's like any other memory on the screen of my mind. Mm. It's still a horrible thing to think about, but I'm not in it. I'm watching the screen. With PTSD at its worst, you're in you're effectively in the screen. In the it's screen. happening around you. So the person who is talking to you, who's your friend, who might have innocently said something which has triggered you, in one level of your mind has now become the threat. Mm. Mm. And so you're kind of like, you know, and you know they're not a threat, but there's a part of you which is so traumatized that you just don't know what the hell is going on. And that shock element of PTSD is the most important thing to recognize at the beginning because there are various grounding techniques. This wonderful psychotherapist I had in my early 20s taught me. Mm. I used to go there for well, nearly two years, and, and, and he helped me just reconnect. He used to say, you're living in this mental universe. Mm. I'm going to bring you gently back into the physical universe. Right. So instead of being just here, just trapped in everything, by touching things like a tree or, you know, I used to go into the bathroom. He would never come in. He knew that was a trigger. The bathroom door would always be open, and I would run, wash uh, the water, gentle, um, either lukewarm water or cold water and it's very tactile things mm. just running water over your hands and then you know just gently over your face it, it's a gradual gradual process of grounding which can help lessen the effects of right. of, of the flashbacks you know? so anyone listening to this who who's suffering with ptsd or um might have a family member or a friend that mm. is is there any particular type of therapy that's that's worked for you 
to deal with that because I think you've tried quite a few different approaches. Oh yeah, would I <laughs> would I be right? I mean, I'd one be of them I think the block a little bit. Well, <laughs> that's all right. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think equine yeah. therapy is one that you've yeah, tried, for God. example. I mean, I don't want to yeah, yeah. open up to, you know no, too no. many forms to confuse the no, listeners. No. But is there a sort of any sort of go to ones that have been particularly useful for you? Well, I was very cynical about equine therapy at the beginning. I was very cynical about a lot of things, to be honest with you. Mm. Contempt, prior investigation, and fear of being taken from mug fear of people all those things i had yeah. in my 20s which got better in my late 20s early 30s and theater actually played a massive role in developing more confidence but in my early 40s i needed a lot more help and i went to amazing trauma therapist sarah sarah the growth practice wimpole street who i do workshops with now you know a great working relationship with her but Sarah, um, amongst many other specialties, is an equine therapist. Okay. And I've always been terrified of horses. And the, the simple reason is that they are physically so big. Mm. And that's a trigger. Because yeah. as an eight-year-old child, you've got a six-foot-two-year-old man or whatever. That physicality. So being near horses, who for me are, are, are dominant kind of silent and all the rest of it, was a real... and and. Doing the therapy with Sarah over the course of a morning session, and these two massive mares were wandering around, and they're her horses, so they were very happy and very chilled out with Sarah being there with, with me. I wasn't happy about it at all at the beginning. But gradually, over a period of time, I started to physically touch the horses. And my fear always was that they were just going to kick me at the back, just kick me, kind of, bow, fuck off. Mm. And of course, that was this fear of rejection. That was this fear of being humiliated in some way or being out of my depth or whatever. But what happened is as I got closer to the horses and kind of touched them and patted them and they were chilled out about the whole thing. They were looking back and acknowledging me and Sarah's there interpreting, interpreting what's happening for me. Mm. Um, what happened was a deep, deep, visceral kind of emotion started to come up. And in that experience, I was closer to the memories of the abuse than I ever had been before because of the physicality. It was a strange, weird experience. And it was exhausting to the extent that I remember getting a coach home from, I think we were near Chippenham. And uh, so I got a coach to um, Victoria Coach Station. And I was so exhausted, so drained. I thought, how are they fuck am I going to get home from here? Mm, mm. I'm only like half an hour on the tube from Victoria. And, um, you know, and I got home and I slept for probably a couple of days because something deep, deep, deep within me started to shift. And with that came an immense amount of t crying. Now, Oliver, I, I hadn't been able to cry for years and years and years and years and years about this. Okay. This was the greatest challenge. Mm. I would feel the emotion come to here. And I was, like, I, I was so terrified of that emotion. I was terrified of my rage and I was terrified of being vulnerable. Mm. So whenever the emotion comes to here, I worked doubly hard at work. I became the workaholic again. Or I obsessed about this or I ate about that. Or so you're avoiding it with I'm other avoiding things. Avoiding it. Okay. I was so scared of the enormity of how I felt. And it was the equine therapy which finally helped me to release wow. the tears. And by God, when they came, it was it was extraordinary. I mean, it, it was it, the floodgates were huge. And, and I'm so grateful that it came because that really, I could feel a shift happening energetically. I could feel an emotional change mm. taking place. That was, 
that was before the book was written. The book was being written, although I didn't plan to write a book at the beginning. I was writing notes about the abuse and the memories and the locations and mm. how many men I could remember. And, you know, I mean, 13 different locations, 50 plus men, probably. Right. You know, it's it, and all of those facts when you see them there, and all these other memories are coming up, are just so shocking. But in a weird way, validating in the sense that, well, no wonder you need to talk about this. Yeah. No wonder you need help. And then saying to yourself, you know, just rewarding yourself in the nicest way with that internal dialogue. Mm. I used to have photographs of me as well. I still have photographs of me as a kid, but I didn't like looking at them when I was younger. I, thought, I used to want to spit at them. I really hated that child in me. Right. And and part of the therapy was to find a few photographs of me around the age of the abuse and talk to that child. And I started to do that. And, and a lot of those pictures are in your book, aren't they? Yeah, a lot of the pictures which, in which the book. Which shows the healing that's gone on. Yeah, yeah, the, um, the book, yeah. Andy, I just want to interject, if you don't mind, yeah, quickly. Sure. Um, and I don't want to come across, uh, you know, too lovey-lovey here when I say this. But out of all the people that I know personally who kind of embody just love and, you know, just being in a great, great place maybe people that are the closest to god if there is such a thing i would definitely have to put my wife in that list mm. <laughs> yes otherwise i'll be in yeah, trouble yeah, you will be <laughs> <laughs> i do genuinely mean that but i would also yeah. put you there as well as being Thank one of one of the most closest people to god if there is such a thing or a term as, as you mm. um and that phrase anything is possible that any healing is possible refers to you more than anybody that I can think of, certainly personally, but maybe ever. Mm. Because despite of that awful start that you had in life, you are this wonderful person that gives back and, and does so much. And we're going to talk about that in a, in a moment. And I just find it so incredibly inspiring um, th that you are the man that you are, despite of what's happened, because I know how much you help people mm. and how much work you do. I just wondered, and we're, we're going to go on to some other sort of modes of healing in a moment. This potentially is quite a difficult question. What role has forgiveness played in all of this? Because Ooh. when I hear your story, you talked Ooh. about it earlier that, you know, you're glad you're not in prison. Ooh. I can't imagine being in a place where you are now. I imagine that I probably would have gone out and killed these men as well. And all the great teachers, whether it's Buddha or Nelson Mandela, you know, I think Nelson Mandela said, didn't he, when he came out of prison, that if I don't forgive yeah. my mm. the people that put me in prison, I'll still be in prison. Mm. I just wondered, for those people that are harboring great resentments in their life from, from trauma and abuse in the past who are mm. stuck, how did you get to this place of, I'm assuming, mm. forgiveness yeah, yeah, on would, some I level? say that, yeah. I think, thank you. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question, very good question. I think... There are two words I really misunderstood for a long time. One was acceptance and the other one was forgiveness. And my idea of acceptance for a long time was, yeah, you just accept it, then you get on with it and whatever, which is rubbish. Acceptance to me now means what happened happened in its entirety. I, I'm not going to run away from it anymore. I'm not going to minimize it. I won't put my head in the sand about it. It's seeing it for what it is. And I had to see the abuse for what it is in, 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 in its entirety. And then learn that, it was nothing to do with me. It wasn't my fault. All of the shit, all of the shame, all of the everything around it belongs entirely to the men who abused me. It's their crap. 
and it's nothing to do with me. Mm. It took me years to know that. And that links with forgiveness. I thought forgiveness meant, yeah, yeah, I forgive you as if suddenly it's okay. And, you know, forgiveness for me is about for me to heal. It's got fuck all to do with them. Right. The difference is I'm not going to find them and kill them. I'm not going to drive the van and run them down. You know what I mean? That rage I felt towards them was understandable, but the energy was wasted energy, you know? And what I realized about 12, I was 12 years sober when I forgave the men who abused me in Brazil at a healing place, a meditation place. Um, and what I realized was that I needed to put all of my energy into my healing, into mm. my journey. It sets me free. Mm. It doesn't set them free. Yeah. I mean, Laura Karma, whatever you choose to believe in, this is their shit. This is for me to heal. I realized that so much of the suffering was my reluctance, A, to, to accept what had happened in a sense of everything did happen as opposed to denying it or running away from it or mm. or drinking on it or acting out in it or whatever. And then, as I said, the forgiveness is for me to be free. And those resentments against those men have never come back. It doesn't make it right. I mean, acceptance doesn't mean you like it. I don't like what happened. Mm. How, mm. how could you? But, you know, it, it has set me free to focus on my healing. So when I talk about the abuse now and, and for a number of years now, I'm not suddenly wanting to go and hunt down these men and put a bullet in them like I used to. Mm. You know, the times when I took the crick about on me were the fantasies of getting it and killing mm. them. Right. And I felt a justification in that as well. And the truth is, I've never been a violent man in my life. Yeah. And so had I acted out on that and been sent down to prison and all of that, I'm the one who's suffering again. Mm. And I don't judge anyone who does that, by the way, having mm. known how much rage I felt for so long. Yeah, yeah. I don't judge anyone who's done yeah. it. I mean, God yeah. help them, you know. Mm. But um, So justice, I mean, I was quite interested, this word of justice, and it's something that I learned as well, that only only 10% uh, 10 don't know who their abusers are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm in that category. Uh, and you're in that 10%. Yeah. And... Um, I suppose this is where it comes into play even more because mm. I suppose if there's a trial and you know mm. they've got X amount of time, you've, you know, your healing has had to, I guess, come mm. through a forgiveness route because because yeah. you don't know who they are. Do you know justice isn't necessarily essential for healing? I've had no justice mm. when I wrote the book. I wrote it under a pseudonym because I wanted to put everything out there, but I wanted just to hold a little bit back for me, and I just held back my name, which now I use publicly. And also I felt a responsibility that although my family had been aware of this, they haven't known the depth of it because I haven't volunteered it. And so I didn't want to shove everything out in the public arena under my own name for them to go through, obviously, a very traumatic experience themselves. Mm. It's, been a, it's been very difficult for them in many ways, you know. But now it's out there and I don't give a damn who knows about my story. I really yeah. don't. Yeah. That's yeah. the freedom I've got. I have no shame around it about what happened. Absolutely. As I said, it's all their shit. It's nothing to do with me. Mm. You know, and it's incredible the work you've been doing. I mean, I I spoke about it in the intro, but you know, you, you've you've been very public on on many platforms, and I think it's so important for other people to heal, men and women. Um, it, it helps me though, Oliver. You yeah, know, I know you do a lot of good work as well. It helps me. I mean, earlier on today, I was with another survivor who's um, in recovery, eighteen months, doing incredibly well, and he's blessing at the stage now where. You know, a lot of the false beliefs about himself are there. So when we 
we talk about in a about um inventory and looking at our behavior and and we talk about you know um I said, our behavior. And I asked him a little while ago, said, tell me something really good about yourself. What do you like about yourself? And it was like, couldn't do it. And he couldn't do it right. because it brought up the shame. Mm. It brought up the rage. It brought up the anger, which he's still putting on himself, which I did for years, by the way. I do understand that. Mm. And so this is now hopefully serving as a catalyst for him to actually explore the fact that he is a very decent man and he is, he's kind, he's generous, he's an honest man, he's a great father, he's a, he's a great friend, he's helping other people, but he's struggling to release all this crap which came from the trauma, which mm. is what a lot of us um, struggle with for, for for some time, but it can be released. Yeah, you know? and and you touched on it briefly about being in Brazil because I know obviously AA's really helped you. Therapy, we've talked about mm. that with the PTSD, and I think you did those things in tandem for for a long time. Yeah, I know a big part of your story is travel. You know, traveling yes. is a big thing, yeah. and spirituality as well. Yeah. Now, mm. before we touch on that, because obviously not everyone you know, might not be in the position where they can travel. And I, mm. and I understand that. And there might be people listening to this, uh, atheist or agnostic, mm. and they hear the word spirituality and they're like, be quiet. But I know it's a huge part of your story. Mm. What element of spirituality do you think it is that has been so healing? That's a really good question. I've, I've always been fascinated. I'm not, I'm not a religious person at all. Uh, but I would say I'm a spiritual person in the sense that I believe there are, there is a way we ought to live life. Okay. And I think it is part of our reason to be here, which is to be the best person we can be. And there's a lot of love and a lot of enjoyment that comes with that as well. So, mm. you know, it's kind of a win-win, you know. So I spent a lot of time in India. I spent a lot of time in India. And um, I first went there in my early recovery. And it really mm. opened my eyes. Um, partly because it's the most extraordinary country. I mean, it's so different from the UK anyway. Yeah. Um, but there I learned about meditation and that helped me piece by piece, bit by bit, deal with this crazy head, yeah. which was in a complete mess. Yeah. And so I linked the psychologist guidance around the grounding techniques, which just brought me out of here a little bit more into the present moment. And then I would, so I would ground myself over the course of maybe 20 minutes doing these various techniques. And then I would start to meditate or mindfulness, which is kind of the more modern kind of mm. word. You know, none of that's got anything to do with God if you don't mm. want it to have anything to do, yeah. to do with God. It's a very practical thing, you know. Yeah. Um, so there are different labels used for different things, which might well describe exactly the same personal yeah. experience. Because spirituality yeah. can mean a, a connection, connecting to yourself and those around Absolutely. you. That That is one of the definitions, isn't yeah. it? In, 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 I mean, I don't yeah. believe in an external God at all. I believe right. for me that there's a presence within all of us. Right. You know, I think there's that deeper connection within you and within me and all of us, which uh, which is what we share, what we have in common. There, there is a presence. And the more I've let go of my own demons, so to speak, I don't mean that religiously for a minute, one, the more I let go of my trauma and my fears, mm. and I still get fear, I still, you know, you know, I still get all those usual things, but the more I'm aware of an inner presence or a peacefulness within me, which is a very natural process. Now, that happens for the atheist. It could happen for the born again. Well, I or, think that's or one whatever. of the things that really strikes me about you, is that, that, and you've just articulated 
articulate it much better than I did earlier, that there is this kind of calm presence. I think that's what I meant. You, you know, um, you all seem very in, in control of your feelings, uh, very kind of um, in a very non-anxious state when I meet you. Um, you seem not to sort of overly worry about outcomes and things that you're doing. And I'm, I'm always slightly jealous. You I'm like, wow, me, how do you, you feel like You mean my best days, Oliver. <laughs> I must do. <laughs> I must do, but despite all that we've talked mm. about, you, that's yeah. that's that's your life now, and it has been mm. for a very long time. And I find that really inspiring. I had oh, I had my moments, mate, of frustrations. Believe mm. put me in front of a rugby match. Hey, I'm a Bath rugby fan. We're bottom. Of the, I'm not happy about that. At all. I don't know anything about rugby. I, I'm I know you're a football fan. <laughs> that. But you know, I, that's why you I pick the ball up, isn't it? That's basketball. <laughs> going on there. But, you know, I have my moments like the rest of us, and, and that's part of the human condition, if you like. Mm. But there are techniques which help us to ground ourselves. Yeah. And I think the challenge is that with PTSD or, or just with life, that it's easy, easy for things to accumulate and accumulate, which make it harder to get back to that place of that inner stillness. Mm. And so the more we can, I think, on a daily basis, try and live the best life we can by looking after ourselves with how mm. we eat. I'm not brilliant at that, but I'm better than I used to be. You're a good cook though, Andy, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I've got to learn a bit more about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. How we eat and how we rest and getting into nature. Nature is hugely important to me. I love being around yeah. nature. Yeah. I live within, you know, 15 minutes for Hampstead Heath. I'm okay. up there usually twice a week yeah. at least. When I was in the Himalayas in India, I trekked through the Himalayas a number of times. And it's just been extraordinary. And, you know, so... Mm. You find what works for you. And if it's having a dog, yeah, then, that, then great. If that brings you out of yourself, if that's a connection. Yeah. I think one of the greatest gifts of AA for me personally, or any support group or, or, or friendship group of any kind, is about that kind of loving connection with other mm, people. Mm. And, and I know you do a lot of work with fellow survivors, don't you? You're very, I, very connected yeah. with them. I mean, I, I, you know, we talk about paying forward. The mm. first guy I met in AA was this lovely old timer called Peter many, many years ago in mm. Western. And it turned out that he was also a survivor of, of child sexual abuse. And he was one of the people I was referring to earlier. He was that much further down the track of his healing journey than me. So I had someone to kind of just follow a little bit. Right. And I have some great women around me as well. So I've always had my own little support network of people. Yeah. So there are no secrets. That's an old saying, you're as sick as your secrets sort of thing. There are no secrets now. But I don't tell everyone everything, but I've got my own little cohort of key people who I love and I trust. And mm. that's a hell of a statement for someone who's been sexually abused. To yeah. Um, who I can turn to are there for me. So I know I can't do this on my own. I think that's sure. the main point. Would that you be know? one of your bigger, biggest bits of advice to someone listening to that who maybe hasn't told anyone about what they've been through to find mm. the strength to reach out to the right people and share their story yeah. and connect with others who have been through yeah. similar things? Yeah, I, I had a chat about a week ago with another survivor and um, bless him, he disclosed to me certain things he said he never shared with any other human being. And I was able to say to him, I said, what you've just described to me, I've heard hundreds of times now, and I've experienced that as well. And that can be healing itself, I assume. The relief on his face yeah. was, was huge. The commonality we share as survivors of, of sexual abuse is, is massive. Just you quickly, know. Andy, I'm just um, 
I just want to get as much in as I can. Um, I know that you do a lot of work, um, you know, in, in an official way as well. Um, you were part of a groundbreaking report and documentary, Numbing the Plane, uh, Numbing the Pain, sorry, produced mm. by One in Four. Um, I know that you you continue your role as a consultant with the Center of Expertise for CSA, mm-hmm. and also that you work in conjunction with counselors, therapists within mm. this space. So it sounds like you're doing an awful lot mm. in that space, public talks, mm. um, uh, working with child. Mm. I mean, so many things. Um, what is it specifically that you're doing to help these people? Is it is it giving your exact experiences or is there things that need to change perhaps within the framework of what's available? I think there's a couple of things to say. One was there are friends of mine who are survivors who have read my book, mm. who every now and then will say to me that uh, one said to me a little while ago that I was sitting down with my wife and I was trying to verbalize what I was going through. And he said the easiest way I could do it was to go to your book and said, please read that paragraph. That's what's going on for me. Yeah. So that kind of shared experience, shared lived experience, I think is really important that no one is on their own. They're not alone. People do understand there is a way through this. We really can heal. Yeah. It takes time. It does. And it takes the, the support of good trauma therapists who are experienced with PTSD. Um, I think that's really important. And that's not mm. to put down any counsellors or anyone else, but I think it's a very specific uh, need for trauma kind of therapy. And the role working with, with Sarah, my trauma therapist, as I do, is to, is to give my lived experience. So I go into a lot more depth about what happened, mm. uh, about the grooming and, around, and the way it affected my mind and about the, the suppressed, uh, the suppressed uh, memories mm. and the fragmented memories and how they've coalesced into... It's rather like a, 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 like a jigsaw, being pieces being thrown at you and you're trying to make sense of it. And with all of those pieces comes the most awful, overwhelming, crippling emotion of self-hatred mm. and that sense that you're about to die. You know, And over a period of time, those memories or fragments have come together. And it's trying to help counsellors and therapists who have vastly experienced a lot of them just hear that from, from, from a survivor's point of view. Mm. And there's myself and another dear friend, um, JJ, bless him, who's a survivor. And, um, and he's public about that, so I can say his name. And, and a lady as well, and we, and we do this fairly regularly. And uh, we've just come together, and, and it's just a great bond uh, and a privilege between us because we know exactly what the other has been through. Yeah. And at the beat, very quickly, the beat, I remember doing a talk about this stuff in Dundee about five years ago. And I'm in the hotel the night before, Oliver, and I just want to fucking run. I'm so scared. And it's the first public talk I'd done to a group of people outside of AA. Because yeah. although I hadn't gone into detail in AA, I'd refer to it in AA, you know, as you can do. And um, But this was a, a group of therapists and counsellors and the police and the judiciary and the CPS and so forth. Wow. And, and it was terrifying. And afterwards mm. I was dissociated and, and I was like, you know. And then I think, well, how am I now? The difference in those five years is huge. Mm. I don't relive it now. I've talked about it in some detail. I could have gone more graphic. I don't want to for, I don't want to trigger people. But I'm present and I'm here and I don't feel any shame. That's the healing. And I never, ever thought that would happen. 
I, I, you know, there were so many times in my life and I just thought, oh, for fuck's sake, when the fuck is this ever going to... Because I'd be reliving another experience of it. Another memory would come back. You know, I think, oh, God's sake, and I'd just be, you know, just be so angry and, and, and confused. Mm. And that hasn't happened. I haven't had the visual flashbacks for five years now. You know, I get emotional flashbacks, but they don't cripple me. It's not like that gut-wrenching kind of like it used to be. I mean, that is yeah. astounding and, and such testament to you as a survivor of just never giving up and always, always making strides to, you know, to, to heal uh, and, and, and find a solution. You really are such an inspiration, Andy. Um, I, anyone who's been listening to this for the last hour, I hope you feel as privileged as I do being here live. Um, I know when I spoke to you, couple of days ago in preparation for this mm. podcast and i said you know have you got any links that you want mm. to share and you directed me to your website and i couldn't believe how much how many resources were there i really encourage anybody listening or watching this to go to um, your website which is www.matcarrybooks.com i'll say that again www.matcarrybooks.com Dot com. You'll find information there about how to get Andy's book, of course. Um, but also there's a brilliant link under people who can help. And I was astounded by the resources there and how many, mm. how much help there is available mm. on there. Um, and I think rather than give all the links, just go there because, you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time mm. making sure that, that everything is there where it should be. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time. And like I, I've said before on this podcast, I wish we had longer. But Andy, thank you so, so much for coming on today. It's been a great privilege. Thank you. Thank uh, you very much. Really appreciate it. And um, I'll see you on the next one in two weeks. Thanks for watching and listening. Thanks, Andy. Thank you.